0: Amen. Thanks, Lizzie. Um, has anyone done the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme? One person. Oh, no, a few more. People are being shy. Um, I have. Um, and um, if you haven't done it, if you don't know about it, basically it's something the Duke of Edinburgh, um, well, the late Duke of Edinburgh, set up a long, long time ago. Um, designed to kind of engage people in a whole realm of kind of like, I think there's like physical activity you've got to do, community service. and anyway, one of the things you've got to do is you've got to go on an expedition, which sounds very grand, um, but basically just means you go for a walk overnight. And um, uh, for my bronze, we went for um, ours in Dartmoor. Um, I don't know if anyone's been to Dartmoor. And um, I can't remember how old I've been at the time, probably not young enough to be just sent off on my own, but there we go. And we went, went off in this group, and the weather was the worst weather I've, I've ever seen. I mean, there were streams that were on a map. as just kind of little trickling streams that were like raging torrents that you couldn't cross. Um, the visibility was about zero. You know, it was just fog everywhere. And you couldn't see anything. You couldn't see more than kind of like um, one to kind of two meters in front of you. And so we're there with a map, a compass, can't see anything. And what do you do when you're in that situation? You keep stopping, don't you? And you keep asking yourself this question, am I on the right track? Why? Because when it's foggy, there's a high chance you can get lost. And if there's a high chance you can get lost, you don't just kind of blaze off hoping for the best, although that is what we did on one portion of the walk and we really regretted it. Um, but you keep stopping, you keep checking the map, you go, you know, am I in the right place? Am I where I think I am? Can I recognize anything around me? Am I going uphill, downhill? Am I going where I expect to be going? Am I on the right track? And, and, and we live in a world that I would describe as decidedly foggy. You know, there is no longer a kind of, like, guiding agenda for kind of how we're supposed to live, for what the good life looks like. You know, it's, you know, institutions that once guided us are kind of now discredited and taken apart. Um, You know, whereas perhaps we might have understood, you know, a sense of meaning and life from our community, from our elders, if we lived in a kind of village environment, they'd have kind of imparted to us what life is about. That's not present anymore. In fact, with anything, we kind of have a a resistance and a kind of, like, um, a distaste for history. And so we live in a world where kind of the guiding narrative is you've just got to kind of work it out for yourself based on kind of what you think will make you happy. You know, it, it, it's, it's foggy. And so when we're going through a foggy environment, we've got to stop and ask this question, am I on the right track? And, you know, as a, as a church, we are those who, who believe that ultimately Jesus is the right track that he is the pathway to life, and life in all its fullness, that it's in him, that it's through him, that it's in relationship with him, that, that we are on the right track. But the question is then, what, how do we know we're on the right track with that? Um, we're going through this like, little mini-series at the moment, just um, looking at books in the Bible that are ludicrously short, that as a result you tend to skip over. And today we're looking at 3 John, John wrote three letters. Three John is the shortest. It's like half a page. Um, but I'm going to read it to us. And, um, and it's, it's, a, it's one of these funny letters. I think one of the reasons you skip over bits of, of the Bible like this is because they just seem a bit irrelevant. They don't seem to be saying a fat lot. And, and they start with this. You know, the elder to my dear friend Gaius for my love and the truth. I mean, who's Gaius? You know, I remember like, when we used to go see my grandma, Love love her... She would just talk endlessly about people I didn't know, as if I knew them. And what do you do when someone does that? You tune out, right? And and I think we do that with the Bible. That is talking about some people we don't know in a place we're not familiar with, in a time that's completely foreign to us. And so it's so easy to just tune out because I think our assumption is that it's meant to be written to us. And, And here's the thing. The Bible isn't written to you. It's written for you but it's not written to you. And so it's a weird thing to read at times because it's written, you know, like this particular letter, to Gaius. It's not written to Will or, you know, Freddie or Lizzie. It's written to Gaius. And so we've got to read it written to Gaius, but knowing that God actually is wanting to speak through this letter written to this guy called Gaius, and we don't even know who he was, thousands of years ago. And he's going to say something powerful to us because it's his word. And when he speaks through his word, he speaks in power. Okay, let's read. He says this, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and all may go with you just as you are progressing spiritually. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they're strangers to you. They've told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, the name meaning Jesus, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth." I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Okay. Okay. So John is writing to this guy called Gaius. All we really know about Gaius is that he was a church leader sometime, um, you know, around the time when John would have been alive. We don't know any more than that. Um, but what he is doing is he's writing to Gaius to kind of encourage him and to say, hey, mate, you are on the right track. You're going in the right direction. And what does he say to him? He says this. He says, um, some believers came. So some people clearly had like, spent a bit of time with Gaius. They knew him. Um, They then came and spent a bit of time with John and shared their experience. And what they shared was that Gaius was someone who was faithful to the truth. And he was continuing to walk in it. Faithful to the truth and continuing to walk in it. What does it look like to be on the right track? Well, it looks like to be faithful to the truth and continuing to walk in it. What does that mean? Because there's a lot of buzzwords there, right? I think many of us might default to an interpretation that runs a bit like this. What does it mean to be faithful to the truth? Well, it means to keep believing the right things about God, to not kind of like allow them to be compromised in any way, to not allow them to be watered down, to not allow them to be, you know, warped or or kind of doubted, but to stay true to believing these things in a world where there's lots of competing visions. And And I think there's a reason why many of us default to that kind of a view when we read lines like this in Scripture. Um, So as a church, it's really helpful to understand the things that shape us and influence us because if you don't understand the things that shape you and influence you, you don't understand necessarily the ways in which you will look through a lens rather than just simply neutrally. We never look neutrally at anything in life. We're always looking through lenses. And as a church at Redland, um, we've been shaped by many different traditions. One of the traditions we've been shaped by is the evangelical tradition And the evangelical tradition has been massively shaped by a movement in history called the Reformation. Now, if you're not familiar with the Reformation, the Reformation was a time in history where a number of people started looking at some of the practices and teaching of the Catholic Church and and reading the Bible for themselves and going, "Mm, this doesn't line up. Something's gone wrong. Something's become corrupted. And, And there was this kind of corruption of truth, of belief, that was exposed that the Catholic Church was teaching things that just weren't true, uh, you know, for its own end, for for the, for the furthering of power, the gaining of money, influence, and, and a number of people, you know, most famously some people like Ulrich Zwingli, um, Martin Luther, John Calvin are kind of like the headliners, um, began to start to speak out, and they began to kind of write about this and campaign about this at great cost to themselves. Because whenever you go up against like um, the titan at the time that was the Catholic Church, it had political um, influence, it had um, spiritual influence. Um, it wasn't just a kind of little thing in the corner. You know, It costs you something. You get ostracized. They've got power. They can make your life pretty difficult. And so these guys absolutely went for it. They absolutely went for it in this pursuit of of truth. They were completely committed to ensuring that the doctrines of the church were preserved as they truly are, and we are forever indebted to them. But as with anything that you do that's where you're coming up against it, you tend to tack to a kind of extreme position in order to make your point. And so you have this slightly strange situation where you've got this group of people who are pushing for right belief, who are so committed to that that they will push for heretics to be killed. How does that concord with truth? How does that concord with right belief? But what that's done as a kind of historical movement is it's put within kind of the evangelical tradition this real importance on believing the right things, which is good. Because believing the right things about God matters. Sometimes we can sort of think, oh, well, you know, what does it matter if I believe this? Someone else believes that. Who cares? You know, what you believe about God shapes the kind of way you live your life. It shapes the kind of person you think you are. It shapes the way you react to others. If you think God is one thing, you will live differently to if you think he's another. And so what they did was something incredibly important. And it's remained with us ever since. You see it, I think, typified in something like um, the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer was um, a practice made famous by uh, people like Billy Graham in the early kind of 20th century. And these were people who went and did these big evangelistic rallies, preached the good news of Jesus, and invited people to respond. And um, to kind of help people respond, to help people kind of have a moment where they became a Christian, they'd encourage people to pray a prayer. And the press went something along the lines of, um, Dear God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner Um, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I now um, give my life to him. Now, that move, typified by something of that prayer, has massively shaped our consciousness as a tradition to the extent where it's not uncommon to find people who believe that being a Christian is simply about believing the right things. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross, if you believe that um, you know, you're a sinner. Well, Bob's your uncle, you're a Christian. It's simply about believing things in your head. And here's the thing. Believing the right things matters, but believing the right things isn't all that matters. When you track through the New Testament, and the Bible in, in, in it itself you always find that when things like belief are talked about, faith are talked about, they're always talked about in a way that goes beyond but includes head knowledge. It's always a much more dynamic, embodied concept. It's about how you live. It's about what manifests itself in action. It's about character formation, the kind of person you're becoming. It's always about more than simply thinking the right things in your head. And that kind of makes sense. Because you know, if you think about it, like so I don't know if anyone's ever done Go Ape. Um, Go Ape is like uh, a high ropes thing. You kind of go and you're, you're, you know, five, ten metres up around the trees and you're just suspended by a kind of safety harness and you walk around these things and I remember years ago I did the one in the Forest of Dean and you get to this point on the one there, I think it's the one there anyway, um, where there's a jump. You clip onto this bit of rope and you jump and you free fall for a couple of metres before the rope catches you and then you swing into a safety net and it's completely safe. But... I remember being there and um, being with other people, and I was trying to explain to them you know, the kind of safety features, right? You know, it's, you, you clip on, it's fine, you know, the rope's got you, you know it's going to catch you. And there were people there who were saying, you know I, I get that, I believe that. And, and they knew all the right information, they believed all the right facts about the rope, but they wouldn't jump. What's true belief? is true belief simply believing the right facts or is true belief the person who's willing to jump off and who will know the rope will catch you? And we see here in 3 John, um, kind of Gaius being affirmed for being on the right track. And what does it look like? He says he's being faithful to the truth. He says he continues to walk in it. And then he goes on and he says, Dear friend, you're faithful in what you're doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they're strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Gaius was someone who was practicing radical hospitality. In the early church at the time, people would move around. In particular, you'd have people who were kind of apostles and prophets who'd go from one church to another. They'd rock up. You'd have absolutely no idea who they were. But Gaius would just take these people into his home and host them and look after them and feed them. Like He was someone who practiced radical hospitality. And for that, he's commended for being faithful. And then um, John goes on and he says... He picks up a guy called Diotrephes. Again, we have no idea who he is. But Diotrephes, what, what's Diotrephes like? Well, he loves to be first. He's arrogant. Um, he, um, he's spreading malicious nonsense. You know, he, he's passing gossip around and rumor, half-truth, um, about John and um, the others. But not only that, he's refusing to welcome others. He's, so he's refusing to practice hospitality, and he's booting people out of the church who are. Like, So Diotrephes is the kind of antithesis, if you like, to Gaius. Like, Gaius, why is he faithful to the truth? Well, because you see it manifest itself in the kind of person he is and the way he's acting. He's he's a person who's marked by love and generosity and radical hospitality, whereas by contrast, Diotrephes is the opposite. He's mean, he's self-centered, he's egotistical, he cares merely about himself, and he's kicking people out of the church as a result. And then he goes on and says... Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. What does it look like to be on the right track? What does it look like to kind of grow in maturity? And we always grow in maturity. We never reach a place of maturity in the Christian um, kind of journey. But what does it look like to grow in maturity? I would say this. Growing maturity always looks like life change. It always looks like something is changing in us. Our character is being renewed by God as we we continue to walk in the truth with him. Our actions are continuing to kind of evolve and become more like the way that Jesus would live as we continue to walk in him. It's something that can be seen. It's something that can be evidenced. You know, are we... Becoming more loving and caring and gentle and kind and self-controlled and generous and compassionate? Or, or are we becoming increasingly grumpy? And you know, do we do we find that like we're moaning about more this year than we did last year? Or do we find that we're more marked by joy and peace and contentment? You know, do we do we find that we're kind of marked more by generosity? Or or do we find that we're increasingly, kind of as the years go by, kind of slowly becoming more kind of financially anxious and constrained rather than generous and open? You know, are are we becoming more reactive so that when someone says something to us that's a bit harsh, we just snap? Or are we slowly but surely, year after year, becoming slower to react and respond as Jesus works in us? You know, are we becoming more compassionate And 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 you know, is our heart ever increasingly for the poor and the marginalised, or or do we find that actually we're less interested and we're more concerned about our own things? You know, how do we react when things don't quite go our way in life? You know, what's our first response? You know, is our first response to consider what's best for others, what works for ourselves, and what we prefer and what we like? You know, are we changing? Are we changing? And, and that's not necessarily something that I think we can see day by day or even month by month. It's more something that we kind of see year by year. But, but Jesus hasn't come simply to change the facts in our head. He's come to transform our lives. And, and when we continue to walk in him, when we continue to walk in his truth, it changes us because he is active and working and he changes us, because part of what it means to continue in the truth is to continue to walk with Jesus. And when you're walking with a person like Jesus, he changes you because he's God, because he loves you, because he's powerful, because he wants to renew you and because he wants to transform you into the kind of person who can be an ever-increasing blessing, a presence of renewal to the world around you. Are we on the right track well, are we experiencing life change are we experiencing life change I want to just end by just giving us a practice that I think can help us in this I think um, you know, spiritual practice are things that we do right, I've said this a million times I'll keep saying it, but they're things we do practically that just open us up to what God wants to do in us because we need that, we need something to kind of posture ourselves to what God wants to do. Because otherwise, it's just like a nice idea that goes away in our heads, and but it doesn't translate into anything. Um, and so, we'll be familiar with this because we practice it every week. But the practice of confession is one that I think can really aid us here. The practice of confession, um, it, I think we can sometimes misunderstand confession. Sometimes we think it's about kind of. I don't know, making sure we've got a clear account with God. And it's about sort of being, um, you know, apologizing continually for all the things we've done wrong, as if we're kind of not forgiven. And the reality is that Jesus has forgiven us. That happened on the cross. That happened 2,000 years ago. When we kind of come to faith in him, he forgives us. Like the reason we practice uh, confession is because we need to be continually reminded of that forgiveness. Because we need God to show us where we're walking apart from him where we're kind of just trying to make life up for ourselves and it's going awry, that we need him to kind of reveal that to us. And the practice of confession is that time where we come before him, ask him to speak to us and just kind of reveal that to us such that we can kind of open ourselves up to going, God, well, can you help me change? Can you help me live differently? And we do it on Sundays, but I think it can be a really powerful practice to practice daily. And, And all you need to do is just take like two minutes at some point in your day And just invite God to speak to you and to just show you, where today have I kind of missed you? Where today have I kind of walked apart from you, ignored you, tried to make up how to live by myself rather than trusting you to show me? And you listen to what he says, and then you kind of just confess it to him. And you do that for a few days, and and fine. But when you practice that over a course of months and years, what starts to happen slowly but surely is, is God just kind of starts to reveal to you The parts of you that are kind of going a different direction to him, and when he reveals that to you, the natural thing is that we realise that we need help. We realise that we need a saviour, and so we call out to him and we say, "Jesus, can you help me with this? Like whatever it is, this thing, this anger problem I've got, or this um, you know air of impatience in my life. Can you help me?" And as we start to call out to him in that, he starts to transform us and to change us. And so, practice confession. If you, I don't know why I'm getting my phone out because you won't see this, but I'll pull it up anyway. A really great um, way to do this is—I don't know if anyone have discovered the Lectio 365 app. Amazing, really, really great app. It's got a two-time um, morning and kind of evening time of prayer. Within each, there's a little practice of confession. It doesn't take that long to do, but it's just a really helpful way because I think sometimes if you if you sit down to just spend time with Jesus by yourself, sometimes you can just get a bit lost, a bit distracted. And it can be really helpful to just have a framework to just hold you, so you don't need to think too much, but you can kind of just be with him in that time. Um, Lectio 365 is a great way to do that. If you haven't got a smartphone, this won't help you too much. Um, but I really recommend that if you do. Twice a day, it's very short, and each time it's got that practice confession. Are we on the right track? I want to end with this. I think it's very easy in the Christian journey, to realize we're not on the right track. Um, I certainly find that regularly. And I think the temptation when that happens is to feel tremendously condemned. Oh, I'm rubbish. Oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I'm... And Jesus is never a God who condemns. He's a God who convicts. And the difference is this. Conviction always looks like invitation. And so maybe there's some of us here this morning... And we feel like maybe we're not on the right track. And I wonder actually if maybe God is inviting you right now to change tack and to come to Him afresh. Should we pray? Should we stand? Jesus, I just just want to invite you to come and and be with us now. You're already here. You always go before us. Um, As you reminded me this morning, you want to meet with us more than we want to meet with you. And so I just pray you come and just draw close now and draw us back onto that path with you today.